Heavenly Father, we are truly nothing apart from your grace, and so we ask for your grace in this moment. We pray that you would show us yourself, your sufficiency, your goodness, and we pray that you would make your Son known to us, that you would, by your Spirit, open our ears and our eyes to see him and to hear him and to see ourselves in him, what he has made us to be, children of the living God, heirs of an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. We pray that you would remind us of these good graces in this moment. Fill our hearts with joy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, You'll notice, uh, based on the physical arrangement of our sanctuary this morning, that we'll be celebrating another baptism this, this week, this time of the Beyer children. Wherever they are, where are they? There they are. Yes, wonderful. Um, Avi and Arwen and Axel. And Avi and Arwen's baptism will be based on their profession of faith, while Axel's baptism will be based on the faith of his parents, on Anson and Dree, and God's commitment to them to be not only their God, but the God of their children as well. And to be clear, there are not two baptisms that we practice, one for older children and adults and one for infants. There is, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 4, one baptism. And the meaning of that sacrament is the same for all three of these children, despite the fact that they come to baptism at different points in their spiritual journey. God is making the same promises in these waters to A.V., Arwen, and Axel, the promise to forgive these children, to wash their souls clean, to adopt them as his own, and to set them free from the power and persuasion of sin. With Axel, we apply these waters with hope and expectancy that one day he will stand before you to testify to the efficacy of these waters, that through them, God brought him to the place of belief and trust in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Avi and Arwen are there. You'll hear them affirm this before you in just a little while. But they believe, right? They are sinners in the sight of God and without hope apart from their Savior, Jesus Christ. If something is still missing for them, in their conversations with me, both Avi and Arwen explain that they, they want to belong to God's family. They rightly understand baptism to be God's claim upon them, his means of adoption, his way of receiving them into himself and setting them into the family of God as our little sisters. We apply these waters to them with the same spirit of hope and expectancy, not that they will come to faith, but that Christ will keep them in the faith and preserve them for himself until he comes again. As they live the life of faith, Christ will aid them by regularly strengthening their souls with spiritual food, his own body and blood. Next week, Avi and Arwen will be in front of you again as they receive for the first time the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They will begin eating this spiritual food as they wander through this world as if through a desert. Christ will sustain and nurture them with this food as he leads them into his promised rest. 
The sacraments mark for the Christian their entrance into the church and their progress in Christ. They are associated with a movement toward holiness, the instruments of grace that God provides to sinners who are striving to be saints. Yet in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul points out that the sacraments are not transactional. They are not magic or impersonal. Mere participation in them does not necessarily result in a growth in grace. This was his very point when in verses 1 through 5, he tells the story of the Israelites who died in the wilderness. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, he writes, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and they were struck down in the wilderness. We read a a pivotal part of the Exodus story for you earlier. The people were slaves in Egypt whom God led into freedom through the sea. And in this movement from slavery to freedom, Paul finds the elements of baptism. In baptism, God leads us out of our slavery to sin and into new life and into rest in Christ. Christ, we are set free. And in the bread and water that God miraculously provided in the desert, Paul found the elements of the Lord's Supper, a spiritual meal that sustains our souls as we wander through life. And this was not a a novel interpretation unique to Paul. In John 6, Jesus compares himself to the manna that fell in the wilderness. He declares, I have come down from heaven. He is like the manna, but superior in every way. Because the man expired and the people experienced hunger again, even after eating that miraculous bread. But Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven who endures forever and truly satisfies the longing of our souls. Jesus was the bread of heaven. He was also the rock from which the water flowed and continues to flow to satisfy the physical and spiritual thirst that all people experience. These people were baptized in the sea, and they tasted the spiritual food that God provided for them. They possessed the sacraments, albeit in shadow form. And yet, nonetheless, Paul says, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. What happened? How could it be that God would lead a people out of slavery, nurture them, through the desert, only to let them die in the wilderness. And Paul gives us an answer in verse 6. Despite receiving these great graces, the people never restrained their desire for evil. The sacraments were not received with faith. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says quite explicitly that this people was denied entrance into the promised land because of their unbelief. Once again, the sacraments are not magic. They're not impersonal. In the absence of faith, they are ineffectual. One cannot assume good standing before God merely because they have passed through the waters and tasted the spiritual food. Origen, the great theologian of the third century, said this about Paul's teaching here. 
Paul wants to remind us that we are not saved merely because we happen to have been the recipients of God's free grace. We have to demonstrate that we are willing recipients of that free gift. The children of Israel received it, but they proved to be unworthy of it, and so they were not saved. Also, Chrysostom, the theologian and golden-mouthed preacher of the fourth century, said this, why does Paul say these things? He was pointing out that just as the Israelites got no benefit from the great gift which they enjoyed, so the Corinthian Christians would get nothing out of baptism or Holy Communion unless they went on and manifested a life worthy of that grace. Where there is faith issuing forth in faithfulness and holiness, trust and contentment, then the sacraments work through that faith to strengthen and secure the believer for eternity. You cannot rely on your baptism without an accompanying resolve to live into it, like Martin Luther did every time he banged his hand on a table in a moment of temptation and shouted, I am baptized. Living into your baptism is to to live as one who has been washed clean and set free from the influence of sin and entails striving and resisting the evil that lingers in your flesh. It's not enough to eat and drink the Lord's Supper without trust in God's love and contentment with his daily provision. The sacraments must be met with faith and holiness in the believer or they are empty. Empty rituals, external works that make you think you're standing when really you are about to fall. If you think you are standing, Paul warns in verse 12, watch out that you do not fall. For it's when you begin to admire your own position that you are in the greatest danger. The wise Solomon once wrote that pride goes before the destruction and a a haughty spirit before a fall. Elsewhere in 1 Peter 5, we're instructed, discipline yourselves. Keep alert like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. And the person most at risk of being devoured is the one who is most confident they are in little danger. Not even the Apostle Paul was either holy or foolish enough to think that. Again, Chrysostom is helpful here when he writes, Paul cast down the pride of those who think they know it all. For if the Israelites, who had such great privileges, suffered these things, and if some of them were punished merely because they were heard to complain, how much more shall we suffer if we are not careful? Anyone who relies on himself will soon fall. For the way in which we stand in this world is not secure and will not be until we are delivered out of the waves of this present life into the peaceful haven of eternal rest. Therefore, do not be proud of your standing, but pay attention so that you will not stumble. If Paul was afraid that it might happen to him, how much more ought we to be afraid also? The same temptations that came to the Israelites in the desert visited Paul and also come to us. No testing has overcome you that is not common to everyone, Paul says in verse 13. He says this in order to put into perspective the temptations that we experience. We often think we're alone in our temptations. If not in the fact of them, then certainly in the intensity of them. No one will ever be able to understand what I experience, we say to ourselves. But Paul says we're mistaken. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to everyone. 
There is therefore no excusing sin by claiming some temptations unique to you. Everyone's experienced what you're experiencing. And many people have overcome their temptation. Paul points out the commonality of temptation, not just to eliminate excuses, but to provide encouragement. Our adversary, the, the devil, has a limited playbook. He has a, he has recycled his temptations throughout history so that they have formed for us an identifiable recurring theme. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters in which a senior demon is coaching his nephew, who is also a demon, about how to tempt and lead Christians away from the faith. And what C.S. Lewis does in The Screwtape Letters is illustrate that Satan is not a creative being, but he can only twist what good things God has created. At one point, the senior demon tells his nephew, there are things for humans to do all day long without his, that is God's, minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. It's precisely because Satan can only twist and cannot create that his options are limited, and so he becomes predictable, repetitive, History, therefore, becomes the best teacher. This is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10. He's looking into the past in order to warn us about what is coming in the, fu- in the future. In verse 11, he says, These things, that is, the death of the Israelites who had received the sacraments, these things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us. In their story, we learn temptations that are common to humanity. Four temptations that must be resisted if we are to use Chrysostom's words to manifest a life worthy of the grace shown to us in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these four temptations are listed out in verses 7 through 10. And the first one's idolatry, the worship of someone or something that is not actually God. Paul writes, Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Idolatry is at the center of most sin. Tim Keller defines idolatry for us in his book, Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol, he asks. It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you, you seek to you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, if only I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, and I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. Perhaps the best one is worship. Who or what fills your heart of hearts? What gives you meaning? What gives you value? What gives you significance and security? Is it God alone? The people received the sacraments, yet they worshiped something other than God, and they fell in the desert. The second temptation is sexual immorality. In verse 8, Paul writes, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Why does he focus on sexual immorality of of all things? Well, for one, this was a problem for the Corinthians, much like it's a problem in our culture. 
but also sex is something that verges on the, the sacramental. It is a physical act with great spiritual implications. In his book on marriage, Keller again writes that the Christian teaching is that sex is primarily a way to know God and to build community. Through sex, a a man and a woman experience a mystical union that mirrors and emulates the spiritual union that is established between Christ and the Christian through faith. It's through sex that a man and a woman within the context of marriage become one flesh. And it's also through sex that they bring children into the world and thus fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. But as Keller points out, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerable, vulnerability and intimacy. But through, though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. One of the great spiritual dangers of sex outside of marriage, therefore, is that you'll have to steel yourself against its power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you and you will lose your confidence in the covenant-making God. It's not just an activity between two individuals, but God is present as well. The people received the sacraments and yet they engaged in sexual immorality, so they fell in the desert. The third and fourth temptations are related, and so we'll treat them as one, putting God to the test and grumbling. These two come much closer to home. They appear in me, and I'm sure at times in you as well, at a greater frequency. There seems to be a, a big gap right, between idolatry and sexual immorality and testing God and grumbling. Yet the latter two are portrayed as being just as deadly. They are a matter of of trust and contentment. The circumstances of life can cloud God's hand. But the question is, do you trust that he's holding on to you still? Must you test him? to prove himself, to show him in the midst of the cloud. The memory of the people wandering the desert was short. They romanticized and idealized their past when in reality it was a brutal existence. They were slaves, but it shows for us our tendency to think that something is something different or something more will be better than what we are experiencing. Our circumstances send us in search for something other than God. Yet God is using your current circumstances to form you. He will lead you and provide for you. Let's not waste the present in grumbling or testing our God. The Israelites experienced the sacraments, and yet they fell in the desert. They are of little use to the one who does not receive the grace conferred in them with faith and with a resolve to live holy, righteous, and just lives. In the presence of faith, however, sacraments become an invaluable assurance of God's grace for the believer, powerful weapons against temptation. In verse 13, Paul says that God will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the testing, he will provide a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Turning your mind to the sacraments 
in the midst of temptations. What they tell you about yourself is a way out. Look at the baptism that you have experienced. And in those waters, see God claiming you for yourself, leading you out of slavery, saying, you are my child with whom I am well pleased. The grace of that will secure your heart and secure your mind in the midst of any temptation, giving you the strength to endure it. Look at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ willing to give you his own body and his blood to enter into your own mouth and into your body. The thought of that, the grace of that, is enough to give you strength when you are weak and about to fall. They fill you with the hope of grace, an elevated vision of yourself, and the confidence that God is in you, fighting on your behalf. For the one who is pursuing God, sacraments are a rich comfort and an instrument and holiness. May we all together grow into them as his children. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.